The kulintang is an instrument played by several indigenous tribes in the southern Philippines. Over hundreds of years, this music has been passed down through generations by oral tradition. Through that tradition, it's also traveled 8,000 miles overseas, all the way to Ann Arbor. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. This fall, the Philippine government gifted 5 million Philippine pesos, that's about 90,000 U.S. dollars, to the University of Michigan to further Philippine studies. And part of that grant went toward establishing a class in traditional Philippine music. The course culminated with an end-of-semester recital. Stateside's associate producer, Ronia Cabansag, went to the U of M's Keene Theater for the show and to catch up with the course lecturer. Let's listen. So my name, uh, full name, is Gian Vincent Almendros. I'll start from the beginning. My parents met. (laughs) Gian Vincent Almendras is a friend of mine. He's an immensely talented multi-instrumentalist and a fellow Filipino-American. The semester at U of M was his first as a lecturer in Philippine ensemble music. But really, he's been sharing traditional Filipino music for the past several years with anyone who might be interested. It's been almost like a decade since I've been really exploring um, Philippine indigenous and traditional music. The one who really got me really interested in advancing the Kulintang and its repertoire was uh, Dr. Bernard Ellurin, who was a visiting ethnomusicologist here. Dr. Ellurin taught a course here where I was a student, um, and basically it was it was very similar to this. He he taught this course on Philippine music, but his was a lot more historically informative. So there was a lot more material where, as students, we had to become familiar with the history of particular genres of music of the Philippines, as well as the context in which they were performed and the people who performed them. A lot more scholarly, I would say, compared to the class that I have now, which is more, really more engaging in terms of performance. Can you give me then the kind of nutshell crash course in Kulintang history? Yeah, so the Kulintang um, ensemble is originally an ensemble that comes from the southern Philippines, from Mindanao. Significantly, it's played by three indigenous communities. Those communities are the Marno, the Maguindanao, and the Samatawusug, although there are also other smaller minority groups that also use the Kulintang in their traditional musical recreation. The Kulintang ensemble itself, just to give you an idea, is the Kulintang, which is a, a row of eight pitched gongs that are lined up in a scale that usually plays a melody. Then it's accompanied by the dabakan, which is kind of like a, a, a goblet-shaped drum that provides the rhythmic aspect of the ensemble. Then you have the agongs, which are two very large bass gongs that provide kind of a, a, a strong bass line. And then you have the gandingan, which is very um, really only particular to the Maguindanao ethnic uh, minority group. Um, the gandingan is a set of four hanging gongs that kind of provide a counter melody. All those instruments come together to sound like this. Jan's class played this during their recital. It's a rhythmic mode from the Maguindanao people called Tidtu. The form challenges the Kulintang player to improvise and really just kind of show off. So 
So there's a lot of depth and a lot of polyphonic texture in these really ancient archaic ensembles. I think most people would be surprised by. I know a lot of people in the Philippines are like, what's Kulintang? Because <laughs> the, the whole Philippines is kind of overshadowed by popular music from outside influences. A lot of traditional music is very lost. In America, in North America specifically, the tradition of Kulintang music was brought by one individual named Danongan Kalanduyan, who um, passed away a few years ago, but he, he was Magindanawan and a master artist on the Kulintang. And he, he hails from a, a family of musicians who were, were really, really famous for their mastery of uh, Magindanawan music. But he immigrated to the United States, um, specifically to Southern California, where he pursued a master's of ethnomusicology. And then from there, he actually carried on the tradition of Magindanao and Kulintang playing. I was fortunate enough to learn from, like I said, Dr. Bernard Elurin, who was basically like one of Master Danny's like formative apprentices. That's how Kulintang playing kind of made its way here to Michigan because... I think actually any Kulintang tradition in the United States can be traced back to Danny Kalanduyan. In what settings would you find Kulintang being played? It kind of depends from um, indigenous community to indigenous community. Like, for example, the Magindanao, the history of Kulintang playing has been used in ceremonial and sacred contexts. Uh, whereas I think Maranao has a lot more melodic material that's been used for recreational activity. But also the Magindanao also have m music that's been used for I think in the newer style, at least, that's been used for recreational activities such as ukulintang competitions or, um, you know, get-togethers, <laughs> just a jam. That was their way of, you know, entertaining themselves, too. One thing I've loved when I've, like, jammed with you guys in the past is that, like, really anyone can play. Like, we have you, obviously, who had a thorough music background. We had folks who had really no music background. I know you've taught children's classes. We've had, like, Lolos and Titos that mm -hmm. have played with us. Like, really anyone can mm -hmm. play. Is that true of how traditionally ensembles have been? Yeah, I would say so because um, I think it's more true for um, the Kulintang Ensemble because it's an oral tradition that's kind of learned from childhood on. There's no real training that the people from those indigenous communities go through to learn um, how to play. But because you know, from an early age, they're listening to elders play this music over and over again. They're absorbing all of that material and then they're kind of recreating it themselves. We need to take a break. Back in just a minute. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the stateside podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. As part of the class, Gyan is also teaching Rendalia. Sounds like this. Very different from Kulintang, very Spanish-sounding. Rendalia is a very interesting genre that came about because of colonization, right? So some people 
don't particularly like to attribute that as Filipino music, but it's kind of become a staple in tradition because, um, you know, the arrival of the Spanish is part of our history. So anyway, the ensemble, the instruments itself um, are derived from medieval Spain um, and particularly from the lute family. So our rondalia, um, which comes from the Spanish word uh, ronda for serenade, that's kind of the function of the ensemble, to serenade. <laughs> so it's mostly a string ensemble, kind of like a, an orchestra, but it's they're all plucked strings. So you have the guitar that provides rhythm and, and chords. Then you have the melody carried by the bandurias. Then you have um, usually lower harmonies or counter melodies um, provided by the laud and octavinas. So these are all members of the lute family um, that derived from medieval Spain. Um, oh, and bass. You can't forget about the bass. It's all about that bass. <laughs> A lot of folk songs are accompanied by rondalia, including this one called Bahai Kubo. Bahai meaning house, Kubo meaning cubed. It's about life in a nipa hut, a house on stilts that you might find in the Philippine countryside. I heard this one a lot growing up. You've talked in the past about being very intentional in your performances and not wanting to just like put on a quote-unquote costume and give the superficial performance. How do you explain that to people as you're teaching and kind mm. of navigate that? Well, of course, you know, myself, I'm not from any of those indigenous communities that I mentioned. But when I'm giving, for, for example, a public performance like this evening, I want to represent that music as best as I can. And anywhere that I go where I'm taking the cool tongue with me to perform, of course, there's going to be people who are going to be like, oh, what is that? You know, and then I'm going to say, it's a kulin tongue. I, of course, I would like to give the correct history of the instrument um, and the context from where it, it, it derives. Not just, you know, say, oh, it's a it's a cool instrument, like a xylophone. Because I think there's a lot more baggage, a lot more weight, at least, that comes with particular instruments that come from minority communities. But also, they're part of that indigenous community's actual heritage. So because it's part of their heritage, I want to showcase that. What do you hope this first class of students takes away from your course? Well, I hope that they don't hate me. <laughs> but um, what I tried to, to give them was the same experience that I, I got, you know, as a, a Filipino-American who kind of grew up listening to mostly popular music, um, American radio, top 40, you know. It's, a, it's kind of a refreshing breath of fresh air to know that there's such a rich history of musical traditions that comes from the Philippines. You know, a lot of these uh, students in my class um, are Filipino-American, so I hope that they can also see this as a way to connect back with their heritage. Before the performance, I heard Gan say he expected a dozen or so people in the audience. Keen Theater seats 150 people, and the place was packed, with a few folks standing behind the last row of seats. That aspect of the music that you're learning slightly changing from person to person is, is part of the tradition itself. It changes from person to person, like a game of telephone. It's, it's a living tradition. With it being a living tradition, I, I feel like I might have a sense of duty, not to sound stuck up <laughs> saying that, like, 
I have a duty no. to pass this on. But <laughs> really, I think, you know, who else is going to do it? If right. I, I'm the only one in the area who might have access to that knowledge, I don't see anybody else stepping up to the plate to teach that tradition. And if there's people willing to learn, then I'm more than happy to teach it. And that's the Stateside Podcast. I'm April Thayer. Today's podcast was produced by Ronia Kabansag. You can find full Stateside episodes whenever you're ready for more listens and more learning at michiganradio.org. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our podcast editor is Rachel Ishikawa. Our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Music for the show comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you so very much for listening today. We hope you're having a good December. See you next time. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.